Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 241, Behind Artemis Mission Control. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. I promised a lot of Artemis content in 2022, didn't I? If you haven't been tuning into our recent episodes, we're talking about the Artemis program, returning humans to the moon sustainably to do unique and interesting science and to prepare for the journey to Mars. In the past few months, we've talked about the Space Launch System rocket. We've talked about the Orion capsule, uh, the one that's taking humans into deep space. We've highlighted a few payloads or stuff, experiments in particular, that are going to be brought on the first mission uh, under the Artemis program, Artemis One. And most recently, we've talked about moon science. On this episode, we're going to be going inside mission control and explore what changes had to be made to support human missions to the moon aboard the Orion capsule. There is a difference with running a low Earth orbit mission and running a deep space mission, and that comes with challenges like bandwidth and commanding software and working on a deep space network. To walk us through some of the changes to get mission control ready to support Artemis One, we're talking with Sean Gano and Richard Gorodnik of the Mission Control Center Engineering and Development Group here at the Johnson Space Center. They have been working hard to build the future mission control, and they walk us through its infrastructure. They'll also introduce us to a payload on board Orion called Callisto and how they're working to support that. Artemis Mission Control, behind the scenes. Let's get into it. Enjoy. Sean and Richard, thanks so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Thanks. That should be fun. Great to be here. All right. Um, for the both of you, I, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, kind of nervous to be talking to both of you today. Um, your, your technical knowledge of, of mission control is, is uh, I'll say, intimidating. Um, but I think we're going to have fun just talking to you guys both ahead of time. Um, you both seem like um, really engaging people to talk to. And I wanted to start with just that, just to get our, our listeners to know you um, and what got you into a role where you are the engineer for mission control, for making human space flight work. What a cool job. Um, Sean, let's start with you. A quick background that, that, uh, of yourself that got you to where you are today, working in mission control. Uh, so yeah, my, my entire NASA career actually has been in the MCC engineering uh, group. So I've, I've worked in various different subsystems uh, to make mission control kind of function. And uh, after, the, after the shuttle retired, I worked on a project called MCC-21, which was a re-design uh, of how the MCC architecture worked. And the kind of the, the idea behind that re-architecture was to prepare for new missions. Uh, and like, so Artemis-1 is a kind of a new mission for us, and we're excited to support that from mission control. And uh, kind of one of the neat things that our team does is uh, we kind of feel like Q from the James Bond uh, kind of series, where our group <laughs> makes a lot of the technologies, the hardware and the software that that make mission control run, while the flight control team is is kind of like the James Bond. They're using these tools and their engineering expertise to go execute the mission. So so we get to make the technology 
and that's kind of what I like to do. Like, I love to make things and build things. And so uh, that's how I got um, involved here. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, is your background more in like hardware, software, or, you know, a little bit of your background and then also your interests? Where's, where's, what really, you know, makes you excited about working and as in mission control engineering? Uh, I really have kind of a, a mixed uh, hardware and software background. So I just, I love how they come together and uh, are able to kind of uh, accomplish uh, kind of human spaceflight missions. Very cool. All right. Well, Rich, what about you? Uh, quick background that got you to, to working on all these cool things. Yeah. Um, so my background is actually a little bit different. Um, so I originally came to NASA as a uh, space station flight controller. Um, so I was working in the environmental and thermal operations uh, group where uh, we were basically managing all of the life support systems for crew members on space station. And I was also a, a crew instructor uh, working a lot in the mock-up. So that's kind of where my background started um, until a couple of years ago where I transitioned to work with Sean uh, in the mission control uh, engineering and development group. So I've kind of moved over from the user end of the spectrum more to the engineering and development side uh, of MCC, kind of working a little bit more in, uh, behind the curtain. So that's that's a little bit more of my background. Oh, okay. Very interesting. I'm super excited to have you both on today to talk about this. What we're really going to dive into today is um, just mission control, maybe getting an understanding of how mission control works behind the scenes normally. Uh, let's let's. I think we should start there, just understanding what what's churning in the background to actually make a flight controller that's sitting at a desk actually talk with something in space. Uh, and then what we're really going to get into today, after we set that background, is what's different to do that with the moon missions coming up. Artemis program, it's huge. You guys have put in a lot of hard work to prepare for that, and that's really what we're going to dive into. But Sean, we'll start with you. Help us to understand the foundation of mission control. What's happening in the background that makes everything work? Yeah, then exactly like you said, uh, sort of when you see mission control on TV, uh, you, you generally think of the flight controllers and the and uh, the flight flight director and and they're they're definitely the a key portion of what happens in mission control, but below that there's a lot of systems that that make mission control possible, and uh, kind of how we like to think of mission control uh, and the, and its systems, it is sort of like an extension of the spacecraft itself. So it, it is really expensive and hard to launch a large amount of mass into space. And so via communication networks, uh, the MCC can sort of be like that extension, the ground portion of the spacecraft. So we had a lot of capabilities that aren't necessarily on board that we can uh, provide on the ground. So we can have teams of specialized engineers that can go tackle certain problems as they come up where those whole teams can't be on board the spacecraft. Uh, we also have a lot more computer processing capabilities on the ground, um, and so uh, that is um, can be applied to a, a lot of different uh, capabilities that that you really just couldn't do on board itself. So, and each spacecraft and each mission has their own unique challenges, and so the difference between ISS and kind of going towards the moon toward with Orion is uh, Orion has a lot more dynamic phases of flight. So ISS has a fairly static; it's going around the Earth. There's there's no launches. There's there's not re-entries necessarily with ISS itself. There are other missions that provide uh, those launches and re-entries. Um, and so that, that adds uh, a kind of a new uh, aspect to the mission. Also, uh, Orion and SLS and that kind of there's an upper stage called ICPS. 
So they start their lives really as three separate spacecraft. And unlike shuttle, which where all those communications were combined, it, it really looks like three spacecraft to the MCC. So we have unique communications protocols and formats and pathways for each of those, the Space Launch System, the ICPS, and Orion. And so we have to take all that data in from the different networks, integrate it, and present it to the flight controllers so they can make good decisions based on the data across all three of those parts of the spacecraft. And then also Orion is going beyond low Earth orbit. So we're going, so you can think of it sort of like a cell phone coverage. When you go out, maybe out way out into the wilderness, you, you kind of lose your cell phone coverage. And that's kind of like what we're doing. We're going beyond low Earth orbit where we have all these geostationary orbits that allow, allow us this nice continuous comm coverage. And we're going way out by the moon. So we have to rely on different networks to provide that communications uh, to Orion. And we're going also beyond GPS. So we have to have a better track tracking and, and other navigation methods that uh, are simply different than, than ISS. Yeah, a lot of things are different, and that's what I wanted to talk about. I definitely want to talk about the communication networks, too, because that's a big one, right? We're, we're, we're not in the communication networks yeah. uh, that we're used to, so we, so we got to rely on something different. Um, Rich, help us to understand these these differences just just a, a t tad bit more. When we're talking about, Sean was alluding to, um, you know, there, there's an infrastructure of how we work things, but you guys are working hardware and software that is fundamentally. And Sean gave a couple of examples. Uh, there's there's some different stuff. So you guys have to have to build the infrastructure. Uh, so give us an understanding of how Mission Control is working. Just a general outline of all of the different components of how it's actually going to support this Artemis mission, an Orion mission. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to just kind of extend a little bit what Sean was talking about, there's a lot of big differences uh, when it comes to the MCC architecture, uh, depending on which vehicle that you're working with. So when it came to shuttle, uh, you can think of mission control as more the, you know, monitoring the the health and status of both the crew members and of the vehicle, making sure the mission timeline is, is going well, um, that they're working on uh, capture, recovery, everything like that. Then you move to station where everything is commanded from the ground and the crew is more focused on science. And that's kind of how mission control has been evolving to more and more being taken care of on the ground. For Orion, it's completely different. It's, a, it's more of a hybrid system. So for Artemis 1, you're going to have the ground that's that's uh, working on commanding um, completely independently versus for Artemis 2 and beyond. It's kind of a hybrid between the two. When it comes to the command system, it's very different than what it was for Station. We kind of had to adapt our own um, and make it really work for Orion because it speaks a very different language than ISS. So all of that had to be written from the ground up. Hmm. The other big difference that we really uh, deal with for Orion is the amount of bandwidth. If you can think about Space Station has uh, about 300 to 600 megabits per second. So you can think that that bandwidth is close to what you'd get on a high-end internet connection on the ground. But for Orion, it's all over S-band rather than KU-band. And S-band is only maybe 1 to 2 megabits at most. So we have a very, very small bandwidth compared to ISS that we have to work with, which really impacts voice, video, commanding, telemetry. All of that has to fit into that very small pipe. The last part, um, as far as MCC is concerned, is when it comes to web tools and displays, a lot of that has all been customized for Orion, completely different than ISS. Same thing with training. When training all of our flight controllers and doing system tests on the ground and you know really getting ready for mission, that is completely different on how we simulate those failures than how we do it with ISS. 
So you can think of it as kind of an independent system completely within the same control center, but just for a different vehicle. Yeah, I find that so interesting. It's it's really you guys are are working on a lot of unique things to support this mission. And let me and and Rich, let me zoom in on a couple of those just to to clarify. So, the command system uh, you talked about it speaks an entirely different language. What are some of the reasons behind that? Why not just you know unify it? Everybody speaks. If you're flying into space, everybody speaks the same language. What's that? What's the primary purpose there? Yeah, so the the way the commands are processed on board for Station versus Orion are, are really different. It it would be, as you say, it would be a little bit easier if we were to make it all kind of compatible. But as things have changed with spacecraft over time and the way that we interface with the vehicle is different, we had to be able to adapt that on the ground. So if the flight software is different and the network on board is very different than it is for Station, then from the MCC position, we have to be able to adapt that on the ground with our command system to be able to make it work with Orion. So that's that's kind of what our role is, is that we're, we're really trying to integrate and be compatible with the vehicle. I see. And now now the bandwidth was another one that you, that you called out. Is that is that more of, uh, you know, a limitation of just we're going far away? So that's that's what it comes with. Are you using, you know, does Orion only support uh, S bands, uh, or, or you know, maybe the re mission requirements were as such. What are what are the reasons behind uh, the lower bandwidth being a consideration for supporting the mission? So there's a couple differences um, as far as what the onboard hardware is versus what communication networks we have on the ground. Mm -hmm. So the types of antennas that are on Orion are going to be very different than the ones that are on station. The other piece of it is, like you said, the distance that does have a lot to do with it. Um, but the communication networks, which I know we're going to go into uh, shortly, mm -hmm. the uh, deep space network is very different than what we use with the uh, TDRS network. So mm -hmm. deep space network is a very point-to-point -point, uh, uh, communication system where we're communicating with the spacecraft as long as we have line of sight. And because we're using S-band, it is a very small amount of bandwidth versus if we're using KU, the distance really does make a big difference because you have to be able to be a certain distance away to utilize that maximum amount of bandwidth. And that's what we're using on station more for less critical uh, video and uh, downlink and things like that. Whereas we still use critical voice and critical commanding over S-band for station. So that part, it's a little bit similar. We just don't have necessarily the same kind of capability that we would on station for Orion because we're only utilizing a deep space network once we get to a certain distance. Once we get to a certain distance. Okay, yeah, I understand. And, Go ahead, Sean. And, uh, and yeah, and part of part of that is um, at and early on in the design of Orion, the the Orion program itself had to make a lot of trade studies uh, or tra trades on um, things, and and one of those was mass. So they had to really reduce the mass of the spacecraft, and uh, so they had. I at one point they were trying to do a. Um, essentially get rid of anything that was not necessary for, for the mission to reduce mass. And one of those things that was cut was a high gain antenna. And so when that, when that was cut, the, the ability to have much higher bandwidths uh, kind of was lost from the spacecraft. Oh, wouldn't it be funny to imagine Orion with a big old dish, right? That'd be nice. Um, yeah, get, get, <laughs> yeah, get some decent, decent amounts of data, but understand you know, they had to make a lot of, a lot of hard decisions. Um, Rich, you alluded to the fact that we were going to talk about communication networks. Let's get right into it. 
Uh, Sean, I'll toss it over to you to help us start because one of the things Rich was talking about was you're you're using different communication networks through different phases of flight, and it's unique to what we see with ISS and the deep space network being one of those big ones, of course. But let's start from the ground. Uh, what are some of the what are some of the different communication networks that we're going to be seeing, and what what has to be compatible in mission control and with all the different components of an Artemis mission to actually make it work? Yeah, and that's that's really one of the more complicated parts of mission control that uh, probably most people are not necessarily aware of. And it, that's where if you start try, drawing mission control uh, uh, kind of on a diagram and you're trying to figure out where they're all connected to, this is where the kind of the spaghetti, spaghetti diagrams come from. <laughs> it's because we really do have to connect to a lot of different places. And that's because as the mission progresses, it, it has to switch between different uh, communication networks. And that's just because of the different regimes that the spacecraft is in during the mission. So so pre-launch, when it's sitting on the pad in Florida, uh, we can uh, it can be connected to the umbilical. And so we can get lots of data from that. And so that's kind of like a hardline ground connection. Uh, and then early ascent, there are ground sites kind of along the, the East Coast. Uh, there's quite a few of them uh, in Florida, near, nearby the launch uh, facility. And also the, out on Bermuda, the island of Bermuda. Um, so the SLS will also talk to a ground station there. Uh, and then after it gets uh, kind of, Orion uh, gets into orbit with uh, ICPS, they uh, transition to using TDRS, which is the tracking data relay satellite system. And that is the same system that is used for ISS. So in that, mm -hmm. in that kind of region, that it's more, uh, closer to, uh, to ISS. But then once the, the TLI burn, that's the translunar injection burn, has uh, occurred. And Orion then is on its journey towards the moon, and it gets uh, past the, the TDRS uh, network or beyond that kind of an, an altitude. Then we transition to the deep space network. And so the deep space network really hasn't been used for, for human spaceflight for, for decades now, especially as the, the primary communication uh, method. And so then we use. Uh, quite a few of their sites, but the, the major DSN sites we use is one is in Australia at Canberra, another one is in Spain, uh, Madrid, Spain, and then the third one is in a Goldstone, Goldstone, California. And so we're on really that, that deep space network for a majority of, of the mission. Then on the way back in, uh, when, when Orion is returning to Earth, there is a short amount of time that we switch back to the, the TDRS network. And so uh, during that mission, we have to seamlessly transition between all these networks and making sure we're processing the data from all three of the aspects of the mission, which is the SLS again, ICPS, Orion. So we're, so we're monitoring these three spacecraft across all these different networks and then processing that data and then uh, kind of getting it ready for all the flight control team and all the other users that, that use the data on the ground. So that, that definitely is a, a big challenge for us. Big challenge, and then and then for, to the flight controller, the 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 ultimate goal. Let, let, let me read this back and, and make sure I'm I'm saying it right. The ultimate goal is that it's seamless to the flight controller who who needs to look at the data. That despite wherever the wherever the vehicle is, they still have the data that they need, um, and that it's seamless. That's really your job. Yep, correct. Yeah, we try to get awesome. it to them seamlessly, and we try to get to them as fast as possible. So they're seeing the, the most recent data on their displays. And awesome. we also try to keep the data in sync. So all of it is coming down and displayed to them kind of at the same time when it was sensed, sensed on board. 
Ooh, yeah, we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. I know, I know, one of our topics today is the uh, some, we're talking about the clocks and everything and how that's going to work. But uh, let's stay on networks for a little bit. Rich, I'll toss to you. Um, uh, Sean mentioned that the Deep Space Network is now up in uh, a human spaceflight mission. We haven't used that for a human spaceflight mission for for quite some time. Um, so let, let's dive into that and just how that's going to work for this type of mission. What, what is the deep space space network and, and how does that work? Yeah. So as Sean mentioned, um, we have three facilities that we're utilizing in Australia, Spain, and California. Um, the way that they're, uh, that they're spaced apart is actually really interesting. They're spaced equidistant from each other around the world. And so that way we always have one that's be, that's able to have line of sight with the vehicle. Um, so as the earth spins, we're kind of, we're transitioning from one uh, site to the other, and we're always able to see Orion, which is, which is actually really interesting. And this is really the first time that we're using DSN to relay telemetry from, from a spacecraft that's, that's meant for humans in a long time. So, um, the, that they were using it for this mission is, is actually pretty interesting. The way that it's scheduled is, um, actually a little bit unique in the way that, uh, ISS is scheduled. So for ISS, as Sean mentioned, we use TDRS uh, predominantly. And although there are a number of TDRS satellites used for other things, we generally have around three TDRS satellites that are used for station. That's on, on any given day, we're the primary user. So we're using TDRS for all of our commanding, uh, voice, and, and everything is going through that network. However, for DSN, we have to share with all of these other missions. So whether it's the Mars rover or any other deep space satellite um, that's going, you know, very far away from Earth. All of those are using the same network, so we have to be able to schedule around them and try to figure out which dish we're using and when, which dictates how much bandwidth we're going to have in in different phases of the mission. Okay, yeah, there's a lot of work happening in the background there. Um, one thing I was curious about, in order to support the deep space network, and uh, not to forget. Uh, that Sean was mentioning, there's a lot of there's a lot of other networks that are that are in play here. You got the you got near space, Tedris. Um, there's 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 a lot of other things. What hardware? What capability is inside Orion um, to enable you know to actually receive to to actually be a part of these networks? Does does Orion need very specific hardware to to talk on these networks? Yeah, so um, the way that it works for Orion is that Orion uses four phased array antennas on the crew module, and then there's also two phased array antennas on the service module. Um, so all of those are used for all of the video, data, voice um, with the spacecraft, as well as uh, a command uplink and telemetry downlink to different ground stations, um, TDRS and DSN as soon as it leaves Earth's orbit. So that's kind of how it works uh, on the vehicle side. Got it, got it. Now, um, you know, Mission Control, Houston, obviously one of the primary recipients of a lot of this data, um, particularly through through the lunar aspect uh, around the moon. is It's it's definitely going to be one of the primary customers of this of this data, the primary receivers. Um, but I know, you know, uh, Orion was built by Lockheed. Lockheed's over in Denver. Uh, the SLS is been, being built over in Marshall. There are a lot of other a lot of other interested customers to to receive some of this data. And so I wonder if if we can dive into the infrastructure there and how how we're all connected and sharing data, make sure everybody's got eyes on on supporting this mission. Um, Sean, uh, we'll go over to you for that. Sure. Yeah, I'll start off, especially for the Orion Orion side. So yeah, as you mentioned, 
yeah. um, kind of Orion is being built by uh, Lockheed Martin. And so they uh, are going to have a team of engineers uh, in, in Denver, and we need to ship them some of the data during, during the mission so they can analyze how the spacecraft is performing and to kind of send, uh, kind of, as, as they if, might notice things or if uh, the anomalies come up, we can, we can use them as uh, support. Uh, but also, before the mission ever flies, they're they're developing their flight software, and we're developing our ground software to kind of to to work with them. And so we we do a lot of testing. And so before the mission, we, we are connecting to their labs. They have a lab uh, in Denver as well as they have one in here in Houston uh, called the Houston Orion Test Hardware, the Hoth Lab. And so we're we're as they iterate through their software, and as we iterate through our software, we do plenty of communication tests where we test out our command systems, we're testing out telemetry systems, and we're just we're going through all those aspects. And and during those times also the flight control team can follow along and they're they're learning about different aspects and how how the hardware behaves. And um so it's it's definitely not a um something that we can test in space. And so that's why these labs are are highly highly needed and um we make good good use of them. And I, I think we're a benefit to them is that we because we can help uh, kind of troubleshoot some of their flight hardware or flight software as uh, as much as they're a benefit to us because they help they help us do kind of the same thing in, in reverse and so that we do a lot more testing on the ground than we ever um, will do in, in space but that's hmm. that's to ensure that we have a successful mission and, and then we can talk during all those different phases of the flight and and uh, we can work through different anomaly resolutions uh, while it's on the ground so we can prepare uh, for for the mission. Nice. Yeah. Well, you got a lot more time on the ground and, to do the and, testing, right? And, yeah, that's for sure. And you, you can fix the problems much easier when it, when it's still on the ground. <laughs> and uh, they're a very similar thing. And there's uh, some definitely some uniqueness of the, the rocket itself. And uh, yeah, Rich, Rich might be able to fill us in on some of the SLS ground capabilities. Yeah, sure. So um, as Sean mentioned, a lot of the Orion test labs are how we conduct a lot of uh, a lot of our testing on the ground. We also do a lot of testing with the SIL, which is the SLS system integration uh, lab at the uh, NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. So that's how we can verify that they can receive uh, data from uh, the SLS rocket itself. We also do a lot of voice tests um, between Marshall and JSC, and we ensure that all the teams across the country, including MCC and LCC in uh, Florida, as well as engineering teams all over different locations, including in Huntsville, can communicate together. So a lot of that testing, while you would think is more localized uh, within MCC, there's a lot of joint testing that goes on, uh, which are these uh, really, really critical to be able to figure out which problems that we can solve on the ground before we ever do a, a rehearsal or we get ready for mission. Makes sense. Now. Um, uh... Rich, on the bandwidth, I want to talk about bandwidth for just a second, um, because I, I, I'm wondering how you are, how you guys are dealing with that. Um, when when Orion is in the deep space network and you have these bandwidth concerns, but a lot of people are looking for for certain data, what are you guys doing? What infrastructures have you put in place to support being able to get everybody what they need uh, with such a low ban bandwidth? Yeah, great question. There's um, there's a lot of data on the spacecraft that we have to return to the ground, both in real time and that we need to downlink for later. 
and the largest amount of data is really including video. So you can imagine the amount of cameras that are in Orion, both inside the cabin, cabin as well as on the outside, generate a lot of video on board. And it's really difficult to try to get a lot of this on the ground to the point where we're trying to store as much of it on, on board as we can. But whenever we want to try to downlink, whether it's video or other uh, telemetry on board or other uh, things that we're trying to, to do during the mission, we have a very, very narrow pipe to be able to do that, as you mentioned. So what we try to do is we try to prioritize which data that we're going to send down when. There's a specific uh, flight control discipline that handles this. They're called the, uh, the CDH con console. So they're the uh, command and data handling, and they take care of uh, the, the downlink from the vehicle using a technology standard that was developed at uh, Goddard Space Flight Center called CFDP, which is the file delivery protocol um, from the CCSDS Space Fan Standard Group. So a lot of, a lot of acronyms in there, but really it's, it's a protocol that can uh, deliver files from the vehicle uh, down to the ground. So that's what that console is, mm. is taking care of during the mission. Got it. Okay. Now, now there's a lot of, you obviously are working with the files too, but then there's also, um, you know, one of the things we're talking about is how things are talking to each other. And I know this is a, a challenge that you guys are working right now with um, uh, Orion and, and this, uh, and the clock, the, the actual clock timer. And I, I wonder what, what that issue is. Uh, maybe Sean, we can go to you for this, what that issue is. And then what you guys are doing from the engineering side uh, to, to try to address that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, normally people don't think about time being complicated, but, um, it <laughs> is, the more you, uh, kind of dig into what time is it that, that, that simple question, the kind of the, the harder you realize, um, everybody kind of is on a slightly different time, um, whether you have leap seconds or not leap seconds and your timers can drift and things like that. And so the, when you're in space and you, you need to hit targets, like say the, the moon, and you know where the moon will be at certain times, um, you need really um, accurate time. And that's because that's really important for navigation. And so on board Orion, we got to make sure that that clock stays within a kind of a, a box of the, the actual time. And as we leave low Earth orbit, uh, we, we don't have the benefit of having GPS satellites anymore, which have, have a really good time source. And so there, we had to develop on the ground some tools to help support the CDH flight controller position, who really is the, the experts on the onboard uh, time timing for Orion. And so mm -hmm. they use these tools to, uh, it's, and we use a method called RDD, which is return data delay. And what that does is essentially is it's looking at the kind of the round trip time and how long it takes data to get back from the spacecraft and go up uh, to the spacecraft and um, from a number of back and forths and monitoring kind of the ground network, we can see how far off the time is on board. And then the CDH officer will then command Orion to kind of cha change the speed of the clock. So if they notice the clock on board is a little bit behind, then they'll still um, kind of slew the clock to be a little bit faster until it gets kind of back to where they want it to be. And if, if they notice kind of the inverse, if they see, hey, we're, we're a little bit of ahead of what the time really should be, they'll kind of slew the clock backwards. And, and that, that slewing helps keep uh, the time continuous because you don't really want to jump in time because that makes uh, things like if you're doing integrations for, for burns or um, trajectory 
uh, calculations, you don't really want big time, time jumps. And so that makes it much smoother and kind of having that, that slewing of time. And so that, that was one of the uh, more challenging tools to develop for, uh, for Artemis 1. And, and we're, we're still kind of finishing off the, the, the last verifications of that tool uh, as we prepare for, for launch here soon. Yeah, no big deal. You guys have to have to bead the clock for the mission. Um, I wonder though, at the core of it, is it is it a physics thing that you guys are working to address from like a software perspective to to make up that time? Is it is it really just like the 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 reason that this issue exists is is because of physics? Just a and and I, I'm not gonna assume I know the physics here, but uh, a, some combination of the vehicle traveling fast and being far away. Uh, yeah, and that's just that all clocks drift over time. And so you have to kind of make sure you can make up for that or, or understand that drift and, and correct it. And um, why it's so difficult is it's far away. Yeah, we have now this big, this, you know, one, one light second delay. And so it's unlike computer networks that are attached to each other, it's pretty easy to synchronize time or it's, it's easier to synchronize time across all of them because the delays between them are, are really small and and kind of predict predictable or more predictable. And so we have this big, this RF communication link that have can have losses, uh, the the kind of the latency involved can jump around. And so how, how do you know exactly what time it is on board um, when because of all these different uncertainties when it comes down to the ground? And so, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of physics involved, a lot of um, kind of the statistics and trying to to really understand what what time is it on board and also how far is that time off from the kind of the universal truth of time and then how do we how do we fix it that's, that's the kind of the, the main uh, challenge amazing amazing explanation and the, 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 and the CD, <laughs> yeah and the cdh flight officer uh, definitely has the they're they're uh, have have to work and and they're the, really the experts of that system. And yeah, so they'll be, if you see them on uh, in mission control during the mission, they'll be the ones that kind of are in our task with making, making yeah. sure that is done properly. I'll, uh, yeah. if I need to reset my watch in mission control, I'll walk over to them and ask them for the time. How's that? <laughs> yeah, def yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, you guys are working a lot on Orion, um, and of course, all of the systems on board to support that, and, and the infrastructure, it's just fascinating, the infrastructure that you guys are trying to build to support these future moon missions. Focusing on Artemis 1, I think one of the unique things that's on there, there's, there's, a, there's a payload inside of Orion called Callisto. Uh, and I wanted to explore this a little bit just to understand what this is, but then um, I, I think it's a good topic to explore on this episode. Um, because I know you guys are continuing to work on the infrastructure to support this payload. Uh, so let's start high level. Rich, we'll start with you. Um, what What is Callisto? Yeah, so Callisto um, is really serving two major purposes uh, on Artemis 1. So of course, because it's uncrewed, um, we're really trying to look at what kind of future technologies we can use to operate crew-operated spacecraft in the future, such as Artemis 2 and beyond. The other big part of it is we're really trying to engage the public and make it feel like they're more a part of this mission. So what Callisto is kind of as a whole is that it's a it's a tech uh, tech demo um, similar to a lot of the tech demos that we have on ISS, but in this case it's a tech demo that we fly a digital voice assistant 
that's going to work with no internet connection at all. So it's completely on board and a video conferencing function that enables interaction from the earth. So it's both interaction from users in mission control that are interfacing with it, as well as being able to interface it uh, from home. So we kind of have multifaceted way that the public can get engaged uh, with the payload. The onboard payload that will be uh, in, in the Orion capsule is uh, was is, or has been built by Lockheed Martin, and they're also integrating it kind of into the spacecraft. And as a part of that, there's uh, been a couple other companies that have provided a lot of expertise. Uh, Amazon has provided their their uh, digital assistant Alexa capabilities to be on board Orion, and Cisco has also provided kind of their WebEx video capabilities to allow uh, people to be able to see themselves inside of the Orion spacecraft to sort of feel like they're a part of the mission. And um, so, but our our MCC team here has been has been responsible for making sure that all the communications with the payload has uh, been properly set up and then that we can um, interface with it from from the ground. And it's been a really fun project because we have to work with different companies than uh, we normally um, don't generally uh, interface with uh, on the ground. So, Yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, uh, Rich, we'll go to you. What What do you think? I mean, I, I can understand that, that it's the technology demonstration and all of this, but what what would be nice about this kind of technology? Why why are we exploring this now on Artemis One? What's nice about this technology to have for future crews? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, when it comes to controlling a spacecraft, you can think of back when we had shuttle, how the crew was really the instrumental uh, commander and you know, the ones who were throwing all of the the switches on the vehicle. They were really the the ones in control of the craft. So there was a lot of things going on with station, even more complex. And now you have a lot of that being taken by the ground and the crew can focus more on science. But again, massive vehicle, massive mission, a lot of things to do. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to see if how we can use voice technology to be able to interface with the vehicle to try to increase situational awareness, maybe improve efficiency for those that are on board the spacecraft. So for Artemis II, the idea is, is that maybe there will be some future way to be able to use voice to help out with the crew so they won't necessarily have to do everything manually and with and with switches and with their hands. They can use their voice to be able to help them uh, fly the spacecraft. Yeah, I'll add a few things there. And it's um, quite uh, interesting that, that we get to use these technologies that many people are familiar with. Uh, many people have kind of digital assistants in their house and they use video conferencing um, a lot now nowadays. However, making them um, viable for space travel is a kind of another thing too, because there, there's all these different delays that are involved uh, kind of going to the moon. They don't, there's no real light delays on, on Earth. And so adapting these technologies and um, trying them out on Artemis 1 where there isn't crew uh, definitely gives us kind of a leg up to understanding uh, what's possible and what we can learn from that to make uh, future missions better and to support um, astronauts and just to allow them to be able to accomplish a lot more science while while they're out there and manage the spacecraft better. So it's it's I think a, will be a, kind of a diving board off into some um, new ways of doing things on in the spacecraft. Yeah, super interesting stuff, Sean. What 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 are you guys doing? I mean, I, I know you guys have been doing a lot of work to support this payload. I mean, yeah, I can I can understand. Um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting thing to explore. 
But from from your guys' perspective, what are you doing to support that? Um, what what infrastructure are you working on? One of the one of the main things that uh, we we kind of faced when doing this payload is the bandwidth is so limited um, that it's it's hard to have a really good kind of dialogue. A lot of a lot of video coming down and voice, and so to have a better experience with that. Uh, we, we worked with the Orion program to effectively double the bandwidth. Um, and we did that by, so the, the, our return link from the spacecraft has something called an encoding. It's actually called one half low density parity checking. And what that does, that it's added to the communication link and it actually takes up about half, half of the bandwidth itself. But what it does is it allows you to correct errors. So as, as the signal travels through space, and, and we detect it, there are errors involved and and which that, that encoding allows you to correct those errors on the ground. And so you effectively get better communication link. Um, so if for this payload, we wanted more bandwidth. And so what we did is said, hey, let's get rid of that encoding. And so when, when that happens, now we, we have the chance of having more errors. And so to, to get around that, we are going to use the DSN has a has three dishes that are around the world and they're 70 meters wide and they're, they're humongous dishes and so they're used by some of the spacecraft that are really far out and uh, and then does that, and they can really detect those small signals and so with those 70 meter dishes we get a lot more signal to or a lot less signal to noise uh, and so then we can kind of get rid of that encoding and so by doing that we can now use two different uh, stream two different video channels at the same time, have some voice going up and down um, to support the payload. Uh, and just, it, it really opens up a lot more uh, options, uh, having quite a bit more bandwidth. Uh, another thing that is interesting is on Artemis 1, since there's no people on board, there really was no um, thought to adding voice to the kind of in, in the cabin of the spacecraft. And so as part of this payload, voice is, is an important aspect of it. And so we had to, uh, so we worked with all the partners and and developed a way to kind of add voice to this mission. And uh, so we worked on especially how to transmit that, how to get that uh, kind of uh, data, data back as well from the spacecraft. So as, as someone is talking to this payload from mission control, they, they can hear their voice in, in the cabin and then that has to be relayed back down to the ground as well. And so we, then we needed to distribute that once, once it's on the ground. So we had to add that capability. Uh, as, and then the challenge with those 70 meter dishes is since there's only three of them in the world, a lot of people do need them. And so we have to, again, kind of schedule that at special times and, and then work around those other missions uh, as, as we need to, to make sure that we can do our, um, our payload, but then also uh, have be good stewards of kind of of that time uh, for those seventy meter dishes because they have a lot of science that's also using them. Awesome, yeah. Rich, have you guys been testing testing this out? How are how are things been going? Absolutely, yeah. It, it's uh, it's definitely been a journey when it comes to testing. Very early on, uh, as Sean mentioned, we were testing in the uh, Houston Orion uh, test hardware facility or the Hoth uh, here in Houston. And we had some early uh, prototype hardware, um, some Raspberry Pis that were given to us by some of the commercial partners. And that's actually where the hybrid engine for uh, the Alexa uh, voice assistant actually was 
was on and we had the other half of it was the intercom that's interfacing with it. So very early on, we were connecting between the Hoth and uh, Mission Control to try to figure out just, you know, can we talk uh, between the two? Can we actually send, you know, commands? How are we going to uh, interface uh, with with Alexa and how, how are we going to uh, have the WebEx piece of it uh, integrated? You know, there's a lot of early things that we were testing. And as that evolved, we started to get a little bit closer and closer to what the real uh, hardware is going to be on Orion. So you can imagine there's been a, a lot of testing that we participated in the Hoth, as well as moving over to uh, the CTIL and ITL in Denver. So that that was kind of where a lot of that uh, a lot of that testing came in came into play. A lot of work um, um, for for you guys and the, and the teams you're working with. It's I mean, but but if you if you pull back and think about it, what you're doing is mission control, right? It's such a historic thing. It has such a big imprint on on a lot of our lives, really on the world, especially with the moon landing. But what you got um, the Apollo moon landing. Now you guys are are building the infrastructure to support not just the the next moon landing, but a sustainable human program uh, where where it's going to be you're building the next generation guys um so so reflecting on that and Sean we'll start with you reflecting on that how does that feel to just be be a part of that busy it's busy <laughs> but <laughs> and uh there it's it's also extremely rewarding so and and as as a little kid growing up in kind of a rural, more rural part of Michigan I remember daydreaming of man, man it would be awesome to be to work in space exploration someday um, so that's really kind of a, a dream come true. Um, and, and as I come on site, I'm still, you know, awed every day when I look at the rockets, uh, right when you enter the front gates and then it's exciting to really be part of building technology that will really be, you know, kind of part of tomorrow's history. It's a big deal. Rich, what about you? Same question. Yeah. Um, I've, I've always wanted to work, you know, uh, with, with spacecraft. It's been an early dream of mine. It's the, it's the reason why I went school to do what I do. And, you know, when I first came to NASA, uh, being able to be a user in, in the Mission Control Center um, for, for the International Space Station was was such a dream come true. And now being able to build out, you know, a new op suite, a new control room uh, where we can actually interface with this new vehicle for the next set of missions is, you know, I, I really wouldn't replace it with anything. It's It's just unimaginable. It was so awesome to to talk with both of you, and so so I wanted to end end with um end with one more question, and and Sean, I'll toss to you for this one. Is I'm sure this is you know you guys are building uh, you're like like I said you're building the infrastructure for for moon missions, right? But but of course your primary focus right now is Artemis One, which is right around the corner, and I expect it doesn't stop there, right? I expect you're going to continue to improve and 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 especially as we start integrating humans into these missions and, and working through some of that uh but i wonder what you're looking forward to of course you got a lot to work forward to for artemis one but for artemis two and beyond what do you guys uh what what, what do you guys have that we can get a sneak preview on yeah you're right uh it's really we have yet another leap in capabilities that are required of the mcc to support sending humans back to the moon uh, we really need to add uh, primary voice capabilities. So that's uh, beyond what we were developing for, for this uh, tech demo. Uh, we also have to build tools to help manage life support systems. And um, because humans are on board uh, future missions, we really need to provide a lot more system redundancy. So we have to have 
more um, emergency communication methods and also have uh, a more robust backup control center functionalities that support Orion. So there's a lot of big things coming and uh, we're really excited to be a part of the mission. Yeah, I'm excited for both of you. Thank you both, Sean and Rich, for for coming on and and talking about behind the scenes of of, of Artemis Mission Control. So so cool. Uh, what a fascinating topic, and and I appreciate your time for for um, for walking me through it. Um, definitely learned a lot. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us here. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I had such a good time talking with Sean and Rich today. Um, such smart people to walk us through what's happening behind the scenes of Mission Control to get ready to support Artemis missions. We have a lot of Artemis content that you can check out, but of course, you always have nasa.gov slash Artemis to learn more about the mission as a whole. If you want to check out our podcasts specifically on the Artemis topic, go to nasa.gov slash podcast. We're there with many other great NASA podcasts that you can listen to. But if you click on our name, we have a, a collection of Artemis episodes specifically, and you can listen to any of them in no particular order. Just pick out the, uh, the topics that interest you most. If you want to talk to us, we're on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or maybe a question to the show. Make sure to mention it's for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on March 3rd, 2022. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, and Belinda Polito for their role in making this podcast possible as always. And of course, thanks to Laura Rashawn, Rad Sinyak, and Erica Peters for their help in getting this episode scheduled. And of course, thanks again to Sean Gano and Richard Gorodnik for taking the time to come on this show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on, and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.